everybody, and welcome to the weekend review edition of the Total Soccer Show. It's been a while since I've done one of these. Hopefully, I still remember how. It has not been a while, but a while since uh, my co-host today did one of these. It's Ryan Bailey. Ryan Bailey, hello. It's been a while. I love you <laughs> quoting Stained off the top of the show. My favorite uh, seminal popular beat combo thank you very much Ted. it's good to speak to you i have missed you dearly we've had an international break i had to speak to daryl at one point during this charade oh gosh good to have you back (laughs) i'm sorry i'm just kidding i'm just kidding you you don't it's your official policy that you try not to associate with people from birmingham right from like the west midlands area you don't do that i mean that's a good policy to keep for sure (laughs) but uh (laughs) i make a i make a notable exception for total soccer show of course but uh, i am very very glad that the international break is over because you know as am i bad things happen particularly if you're a maurizio pochettino but hey yeah, right. That. Yeah, that, that, that happened. That happened. It's also the case that uh, I'm happy to not have to try to find positives in a routine win over Cuba. So I'm excited to talk about more <laughs> dramatic things like uh, Mauricio Pochettino lists Tottenham getting a win, uh, their first game under Jose Mourinho. Jose Mourinho back in the Premier League. Ryan, I'm going to assume you were excited about this, although I did also see, I, I believe, a tweet in which you were crying about the loss of Pochettino. Well, the, the tweet with Pochettino on the whiteboard writing his um, irregular note on this saying how much he was going to miss everybody. That yeah. was kind of, I, I like that. I mean, it's obviously a little bit staged because there's a photographer, you know, documenting right. it. But, <laughs> but I thought it was nice. And there's some politics behind that, obviously. But yeah. at first, when I woke up that morning and Mourinho, uh, you know, holding up the shirt pictures came out, I, mm-hmm. I literally had watched a couple of episodes of Black Mirror the night before. And I was, I, for a minute, I was like, I haven't woken up yet. I'm still in one. I'm sure I'm still in one here. But uh, um, the more I think about it, the more I think it's kind of a good thing for Tottenham. And I think this result for Tottenham was really good in the, you know, it was convincing out of the blocks, getting up to a, um, a 3-0 lead. And then there were, the problems were still there. The problems that Tottenham can't hold a lead very well. The problems they switch off in the uh, latter third of a game. They're still there. So, to- uh, so, so Mourinho knows what he's got to work on. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense, and I agree entirely, but I want to start with the very beginning of what you said. I want to start with the start. Ryan, how do you <laughs> mentally prepare yourself to watch Black Mirror? Because I always try to get up for it, and then I'm like, I, I'm just going to watch The Office again. Like, I, you have to, I feel like you have to be in the right frame of mind to be ready to enjoy Black Mirror. It's not, it's not a daytime show, that's for sure. I'll give you that. <laughs> um... All right, so make, make sure it's night. Make sure it's night. And then, like, do you have to have a drink available just to like, kind of, like, soothe the nerves a little bit? Because, like, the four or five episodes I've watched, I tend to get a little bit like, I'm really happy this isn't my life. And maybe that's the way to approach it. I mean, yeah, they're, they're quite formulaic when you get to them, so you know what to expect in a lot of them. The only one that really freaked me out is there's an episode where, like, there's a, a museum, and it, co- it kind of references back to previous episodes. I don't know if you seen that one tay tay but that Is one that the black museum the black that one kept me up for days okay i have not seen that one so maybe, maybe i'll just start there and then i won't sleep and that will give me more time to watch all the soccers uh <laughs> but as you said uh, black mirror can be a little bit uh formulaic this season momentarily was formulaic now we've we've got the chaos we've got the mid-season chaos Woo! that we've come to know and expect from the Premier League uh Jose Mourinho is is back in the Premier League we have Klopp we have Pep Guardiola I'm going to start off with this Ryan if you could add one more manager we we do expect there's going to be some more uh, managers sacked maybe before the end of the year or at least like around the beginning of the new year uh if you could bring in one person to really like like ratchet up the intensity, ratchet up the drama or the crazy or whatever you want to go with, who would it be? Or would you go the opposite way and would you bring somebody in to calm it down? Oh, no, I don't, I don't want anything calm in my Premier okay. League viewing, frankly. Attaboy. No, um, Attaboy. it's got to be Bielsa, hasn't it? It has to be. <laughs> I, had a, I had a feeling you'd go there. I had a feeling Daryl would go there as well. My question then is, I feel like I don't have the the love for everything Bielsa. Not to say that like I don't like him. It's just that I feel like I missed that joke a little bit. And now everybody's like, oh, Bielsa ball. Oh, Bielsa's crazy. Oh, he's sitting on a cooler. So so what is it about Bielsa that you most especially want to bring back to the Premier League? Mainly, bring into the Premier League? It's mainly the seating choices. I'm sitting on an upside down bucket right now <laughs> in, in tribute. That's all I want to see. <laughs> Just the various uh, seated positions of yep. Marcelo Bielsa? That's right. I, I think his hip flexors are, are second to none. He can sit like a champ. 
And that's that's what it takes. That's the key thing. People don't know that, but it's it's uh it's really really strong hip flexors is what it takes to endure an entire Premier League season. Mauricio Pochettino did not endure. Uh, Jose Mourinho did and got his win, a three two away win against West Ham. Uh, by all accounts, the three two sort of flattering to deceive for West Ham, who uh, pull two goals back when Tottenham decide or remember rather, oh yeah, we're Tottenham. We don't like uh, hold on to leads and we want to make things dramatic. And that's exactly how it went down. So do you feel like this is a strong start for Mourinho, a good start, or just a start for Jose at Tottenham? Uh, I think it was a pretty strong start. I mean, we, we saw some some very positive performances. Deli Ali playing that number 10 role very well. Uh, you know, the fullbacks firing a little bit more than we'd seen previously. Mm-hmm. Harry Winks getting in there, which is great to see. Uh, Lucas Mora, who appears to be Jose Mourinho's pet project going forward. I like that. Yeah. I know that he, he, he fancied him very much. Um, they tried to bring him to Man United, didn't he? Um, he, he could be his muse. I like the sound of that one. But, but as I say, there were still the shortcomings as well. There was still the yep. switching off. There was, I mean, this West Ham team were not good. I mean, this was, in, it, we're looking back at it with hindsight. This was kind of two not great teams, but one was a lot worse than the other, if that makes sense. It wasn't Tottenham absolutely being brilliant. I think 3-0 would have flattered them far more than they deserved uh, in this one. But yeah, I, I like the setup that Mourinho had. And... I, I, I think this, they've got a lot of building blocks to go forward with, frankly. Yeah, I, I would agree entirely with that. Uh, Michael Cox for The Athletic wrote a great like kind of uh, zonal marking-esque uh, uh, tactics piece that I thought did a really good job of kind of spelling out how Mourinho just came in, simplified things, 4 2 3 one, mm. uh, when they're defending, but a lot of times it was Ben Davies staying and Serge Aurier going, and essentially uh, Tottenham would routinely have like a 4-2-4 in attack, and I guess his, his argument was essentially that he put all the best attacking pieces on the field and found a way for them all to combine, but then you have that sort of moment when Tottenham go up 3-0 and then decide, like, that's probably enough and just sort of take the foot off the gas, and that's probably where he'll have to focus his attention is on, like, maintaining that discipline. Um, so I, I expect he'll be able to do that uh, because I, I do think Jose Mourinho this time around is going to be a bit more flexible than he's been, than it, at, le- at least he was at Manchester United and maybe in his final stint at Chelsea. Mm. Um, so I have sort of an optimistic view on Mourinho at Spurs, less so uh, Manuel Pellegrini at West Ham, yeah. who did not look particularly good despite getting those two goals and I I think if you're looking at who gets sacked next which is the question we're always pondering uh, it's probably either Pellegrini at West Ham Emery at Arsenal or Marco Silva at Everton if you were putting money down or maybe you already have Ryan who would you be betting on from those three I wouldn't possibly place a bet Taylor I'm in North Carolina where it's not legal to do so so I definitely wouldn't do that for any uh, legal authorities who are listening but I'd say Marco Silva it's got to be the choice for me I mean after that loss at the weekend Surely he has to be the favorite, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's it's sort of like uh, I read I read a good piece for the Guardian where they were sort of like reasons why they should be sacked and why they shouldn't be sacked. And with every single one, it was like, well, you know, like there's no one else really better. Or like, oh, you know, you've got to give them time. And with Marco Silva, it was just this sort of like, well. Uh, I mean, Pochettino's not available for Everton, so I guess stick with him. Like, there were not really many compelling arguments. It does feel like it's Marco Silva, and it does feel like Everton are not uh, necessarily responding to him. So, yeah, I think I I would agree with you. And then maybe Unai Emery is the safest of the three. Not to say that he is particularly safe, but just that I think because he is a a big-ish or big-enough name, Arsenal maybe don't want to pull that trigger too prematurely, especially without knowing who else could come in. They did get a point, so at least there's that. That's one more point than Everton got this weekend for sure. Yeah. Um, so, so we think those three are maybe like the most logical candidates. Are there any other ones you'd throw in? It's got to just be those three. I think the managerial right. merry-go-round is going to spin quite a bit between now and yeah, May. It feels isn't that it? way, right? It, it feels does. poised, but it also feels like there's not a lot of really good replacements out there. I know there's people like Allegri who don't have a job right now, but I don't know. It feels like it's just going to keep recycling through. Like, so where do West Ham go after Pellegrini, for example? What do, what do they do? Is it like, so, I mean, there's, there's, I suppose there's someone like Benitez, but he's not going to go to West Ham, is he? I mean, I, I would doubt it. Like, it, it's because the Newcastle one, it, like, when he first went there, felt like a little bit of a stretch, but then maybe it was like, oh, they're just going to give him free reign to do whatever he wants. And then what he wanted to do was sign players, and they didn't actually let him do that. So mm. that didn't really work out. So maybe he'll be reticent to get into that situation again. But, I, but I, I totally agree with you, especially about West Ham, because it feels like there's some certain clubs, in this case, West Ham, who have this 
very quickly move from, okay, we're like relegation battlers or we're kind of like mid-table survivors to we got to be challenging more. So we're going to sack the, like the, any manager that or not look at any manager who's going to keep us in that sort of like 14th spot safe but not necessarily impressive. And instead we want to kind of look for new heights, try to achieve uh, new ground. But then when that doesn't work, you end up sort of back in that same spot. And that does feel like how they kind of fluctuate. So – I guess what I'm arguing for is Big Sam. Let's get Big Sam back at West Ham and see what happens. Let's see what he's doing. Pints of wine all round at the London Stadium, baby. <laughs> now, I, I don't think that Pellegrini's players were helping him very much in this one. I mean, no. apart from sort of Noble, was there any good players on the field for West Ham in this one? I mean, uh, Mikel, Mikel Antonio coming back in and getting oh, the goal. Like, but that, but that's just a that is also a like returning from injury substitution, and that would be an argument against Pellegrini if anything, because it's I, again returning from injury. I get it, but also like a player comes in off the bench and looks that strong, it leads to inevitable questions of like, well, why isn't he playing more? And also, should um, he be playing other players more. A playground finish on the goal, wasn't it? When you end up on your butt when you've scored the goal, isn't that's always a it's never <laughs> good, is it? Daryl and I had that question, had that conversation the other day about why players fall down when they finish. I think it was, I think Jordan Morris was like passing it past the Cuban goalkeeper. See, I brought it back to Cuba, Yay. and he and he fell down. And our and our explanation, or the one that Daryl uh, landed upon, I should give him credit, was essentially if you're like opening up at the last second to try to shoot, it leads to you not being able to continue running. But here with uh, Miguel Antonio, it was more so just him falling over and hitting the ball at the same time. It was it was a well taken finish, but yes, it was also a little bit uh, a little bit fortunate at the same time. And can we talk for a little bit about West Ham's goalkeeper? Poor Roberto. <laughs> I mean, he's been getting a lot of stick lately. And my, yes. I don't watch a lot of Olympiacos, but my understanding was he was very good there. But mm. I, think, I think the thing that was going around social media is that he must have the world's best agent to get him where he's got today. There was, uh, there was a point in the game where he made like a nice clean catch with no problems and the, the West yeah. Ham fans cheered it. Yeah, the sarcastic cheers for your goalkeeper when he does something is never a great look for the fans or for the goalkeeper. And it does feel like maybe the fans are, are bound to stick around longer than the goalkeeper. So, mm. yeah, probably not not great for him. <laughs> and not great for West Ham as a whole either, but to bring it back, uh, definitely better for Tottenham. Uh, I think the moment when I was like, okay, yeah, jo- Jose Mourinho definitely fully back and like ready to go in the Premier League is Eric Dyer returning to the starting eleven Because that just feels like a Jose Mourinho player of, just sit deep, break up play, don't mm. do anything spectacular, try not to do anything unspectacular, and we'll all be fine. And that is pretty much how it worked out for him. Uh, so I think that right there made me happy. Lucas Mora being his muse, I hadn't really thought about that, but now I'm obsessed with that idea. Yep. That makes me happy. And as you said earlier, Dele Ali being the number 10 and just seeming to like. Was it Dele Ali or was it Dele Ali's brother? I can't remember. <laughs> it was both. Okay. That's how they kept them. That's how they looked so sharp is they would swap them in and swap them out really fast. But that, that as but, much as I mock that, that is kind of an example of the man management. I mean, obviously he mm-hmm. uses various techniques to get the most out of players. And obviously that has worked on Delhi thus far. And yeah. he probably takes a different approach when he's talking to Home Son or Harry Kane. I mean, it's a, it's, you've got to give credit where credit's due for that kind of thing. And I I thought actually there were many aspects of this that were quite un-Mourinho-esque. Like this was a team that was, they were quite fun to watch. They were, Mm -hmm. they were going for every ball. They were winning the ball. They were, I mean, we had like Toby Alderweireld coming out of defense to take on people and push the ball forward. These are things, and and, and they were breaking really fast. They were breaking faster than I've seen a Mourinho team break in a long time. Mm -hmm. It seems like there were, it seems like almost like Mourinho's been sitting on the sidelines and watching what works in this Premier League and thinking, I could apply a little bit of it to this team. Hmm, why don't I try that? So I, I, th- I said this on the show last week. I'll say it again very briefly here. I am a big believer in the idea that Mourinho was uh, hard done in his final season at Manchester United by the lack of signings, by the lack of investment, and by the lack of backing from the board. I, at the time, wasn't a big fan because I felt like it was really boring soccer. And I absolutely agree with you that I think he was probably still a good manager then but was less willing to adapt. I think his time in the wilderness of being a TV pundit for like six months, uh, I think maybe has allowed him, to, to your point, to sort of adapt his approach. And he said that he was going to do that. He said, uh, Daniel Levy had said he was impressed by Mourinho uh, and kind of the way he had adapted like his, his normal philosophy. And I, and I do think with that in mind that this game was not just West Ham being the ideal opponent for Tottenham in this game, but just it was a, it was a sign of what Jose Mourinho, I think, is going to try to do at Tottenham. Now, mm. it may just be that West Ham were that poor, and so he was able to have his team look that solid. But I think West Ham, for their part, were maybe thinking they were getting a Jose Mourinho team with Jose Mourinho having just taken over, so they were going to be 
defensive and a little bit slower. And maybe West Ham anticipated that, whereas Tottenham, I absolutely agree with you, came out really rapid counterattacks. The intent of getting Serge Aurier forward as quickly as possible seemed to be to pull West Ham out and open up space for other players. And it seemed to work pretty routinely. So I I agree with you that this was uh, an exciting uh, Tottenham team and a team that seemed like they had more of a cohesive plan or at least a cohesive plan that they were intent on uh, playing within. Yeah, and if I had to give a couple thumbs down to to Spurs, I would would point them in the direction of uh, uh, of Musa Sissoko and Christian Eriksen, both of them Mm -hmm. I thought. Not very good, particularly Ericsson. It just still doesn't look very interested, does he? Nope, he sure doesn't. And I <laughs> totally look forward to the the battle of wills that will exist between Jose Mourinho and Christian Eriksson. Oh yes, I, I, I foresee that coming, and I foresee Christian Eriksson maybe departing in January or this summer would be my guess. I mean, surely Dele Ali's got that spot wrapped up now, hasn't yeah. he? Mm-hmm. There's no question. I think so. There. Yeah, so we'll, we'll see what happens there. We'll see what happens with the rest of the Premier League. We've got a few more games to discuss. But first, Ryan Bailey, I wanted to talk about today's sponsor. It's our friends over at SeatGeek. Ryan uh, and I have discussed SeatGeek many, many times. With millions of live event tickets and a price match guarantee, SeatGeek proves there's a better way for you to find tickets to sports, live music, comedy, and more. SeatGeek has the tickets you're looking for all in one place. It does indeed. It's a ticket company where the customer comes first. Did you? You know, mm. there's more than 50,000 five-star reviews in their app store, and SeatGeek is focused on making your experience as easy as possible. Case in point, Tay-Tay, the fact that I used SeatGeek this very week to buy myself some National Hockey League tickets. Apparently, there's this thing called Iced Hockey. Uh-huh. I like Iced Latte, yeah, yeah. so maybe it's similar to that. I've no idea. It's very similar. Yeah. It's, it's the, the entire rink is made of coffee. It, that's true. That's how the players stay active. It's a whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I've seen the Mighty Ducks. It's about children punching each other on ice, right? Is that what happens in this game? <laughs> I really, 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 really hope that, that the Mighty Ducks is your single frame of reference for hockey. It, it, it quite literally is because I've never seen any other <laughs> form of it. But I'm going to see it. I'm going to Las Vegas in a couple of weeks. And I'm going to see the Golden Knights play the mm. New York Rangers. Rangers. That's, you nailed it. No, it's Rangers. Rangers. You, you were correct. And I used SeatGeek to buy the tickets. I needed, I needed five tickets. And you can get you know any kind of quantity of tickets you want here. This is a great place to do it. I didn't buy the cheapest tickets. I bought the best value. And how do I tell they're the best value? SeatGeek tells me. Scale mm-hmm. of one to ten, which, uh, which t- uh, seats are the best value? You get a green light for the very best. A yellow for the, eh, don't buy these ones. And a red for, don't buy these ones. Definitely don't. Got myself a very nice position in this T-Mobile arena. Thank you very much to SeatGeek. And, and yeah, you, you're getting all your sponsorships in there. My question for you then, uh, <laughs> if you're explaining this game to people uh, back home, or for you back home, uh, like I, I have a feeling that it would be like, oh, I'm going to see the Rangers. Yeah, okay, that's a totally normal team name. That's fine. Versus the Golden Knights. Would Golden Knights be the one that throws people off? Yes. In terms of what? In terms <laughs> of the crazy name? I just, I just, yeah, I just think about like that. that is a, like, a very, in my mind, American sports franchise name. It, to me, it sounds quite Game of Thronesy. I could imagine sort of King's Landing having some Golden Knights standing at the gates, couldn't you? That is, I think that is the official basketball team of King's Landing is the Golden Knights. <laughs> yes. So, uh, we, yeah, and, and and the Mountain does just fine in that league. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, so Ryan did really well to, to find the good value. He used the traffic light system, and hopefully he used the TSS promo code to get $10 off, uh, which our listeners can do as well. Uh, all they need to do is use promo code TSS, so you can download the SeatGeek app, use promo code TSS for $10 off on your first SeatGeek purchase. That's promo code TSS for $10 off on your first purchase. Thank you very much to SeatGeek for sponsoring today's episode of the Total Soccer Show. Ryan, let's continue with our weekend review. Where should we go next? How about we go to the Selhurst Park. Okay, that makes sense to me. I, I'm I'm surprised you wanted to go there. I would have thought it was going to be City Chelsea, but you want to give Liverpool credit where credit is due? I like to build up to City Chelsea. That's what I'm there doing, creating some tension. I see. He's creating the drama. Well, let's go to Crystal <laughs> Palace 1, Liverpool 2. I'm going to go ahead and give thumbs up in a more general way to Liverpool for continuing to find ways to not lose. And I don't mm. mean that in like backhanded compliment fashion at all. Uh, I do have a, a Man United supporting friend who routinely just talks about how Liverpool keep getting lucky and like, oh, they're so lucky and it's not about skill. Live and there's that more are- like, right? Yeah, but <laughs> at a certain point, If you are routinely getting lucky, the question becomes, is it lucky or is it you're putting yourself in a position? And I do think that 
it was a little bit of both in this one that the winner from Firmino where it's just sort of bodies in the box, everybody gets a go and eventually he buries it off of a very bad clearance and a lot of scuffling. Like that's what it takes to find a way to win. It doesn't have to be pretty, but then you also need moments like at the death, Wolfred Zaha skying a sitter at the very end. Should have at least put that on frame. Maybe should have squared it for Christian Benteke for him to then put over. And then the narrative would have been about Christian Benteke can't finish. He would have put it Zaha. He definitely would have. He absolutely would have. He went for a bike that went just wide. And once you go just barely wide on a bicycle, when you've got a sitter, you're definitely putting that one over too. Uh, so it just, But it just felt like they sort of rode their luck. Wolfred Zaha misses that chance when probably eight out of ten other times, I'm going to say he buries it, or eight out of ten times, that's just a finish he takes. Here he did not. Liverpool get the win. So I'm just going to say thumbs up to them from a general standpoint of finding a way to win and backing themselves to get the result. Yeah, definitely. Now, uncon- I think feel like I've said this many times on this show, but unconvincing wins are what champions do. Mm-hmm. You look back at the Alex Ferguson era, there were so many times when they scraped it when they probably didn't deserve it. And what Liverpool are doing, it seems like this season on the road, they're the second best team quite a lot of the time. And still getting three points, like the Sheffield United mm-hmm. game, the Villa game, the, uh, the Man United game too. It's it's like they they they've nailed this formula of getting away with it on the road, which I appreciate. And the both both goals, you know, they were pretty scruffy, weren't they? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Mane scuffing a shot in off both posts, which was pretty unlucky yeah. for Palace. Which it seemed like Roberto Firmino miscontrolled a cross before it fell to Mane as well. Mm-hmm. And then you've got that corner coming in. Uh, through traffic for, for Firmino to slot in for the second goal. And Crystal Palace were really good here. And we know that this ground is is not a great ground for Liverpool to visit and certainly not for a Brendan Rodgers Liverpool team to visit or a Luis Suarez one. He, he shed a few tears on that field before, mm-hmm. as we know, of course. And, you know, we know how Palace are good at set pieces. You know, they're very well organised. And, you know, they, they were very good at trying to park the bus once they, you know, once they got that sort of <laughs> equaliser, it seemed. They had, uh, Palace had 16 um, attempts on goal. Liverpool had 12. I think that tells you a lot about what happened in this one. And they were unlucky because they got the uh, Tompkins header ruled out, the, the VAR um, decision mm-hmm. ruling that one out, which is a fair decision. I don't have any problem yeah. with that, but it just shows how the, the balance of play was. Um, it does make you think about that Zaha miss at the end, doesn't it? He he was five yards away from any other Liverpool yeah. player. Really should have done better. And he had a great game as well. And you look at mm-hmm. um, uh, Liverpool's equal, uh, sorry, Palace's equaliser. Zaha basically was in like the left back position, and he mm-hmm. worked his way. He beat a couple players. He worked his way all the way into the box. And give credit to Benteke, he had some nice work in the build up to that goal. Who put the ball into Townsend, who then laid it off to Zaha to finish. But Zaha was all over the field for that one. Um, yeah, he, he's a master of he's a master of the uh, he did it. I think Mikel Antonio did it as well. The like as the ball is coming to you laterally from like if you're if I'm standing to the right of Ryan Bailey and he plays it to me, the kind of stepping into the ball and then letting it roll completely across you yeah. and then taking a touch but fooling the entire defense. That little bit of skill without ever touching the ball but knowing exactly how to manipulate the defenders is just so pretty to watch at the moment because it sends everybody the wrong way and opens up space for the shooting opportunity and yeah Wolfram Zaha uh turns out pretty good maybe somebody should have told Man United uh but (laughs) maybe he he should have yeah, that, that would have been a good idea. Uh, but instead, he is unable to find the equalizer. Uh, Liverpool able to get all three points there. Eight points ahead of uh, Leicester City in second. Almost made that mistake. And then nine points ahead of Man City in third. And I'm not saying this as a reverse jinx, Liverpool fans, I promise. But it feels like we are either poised for Liverpool to win the title, that they're going to keep getting these results, they're going to keep finding a way through. Of course, they're going to have some slip-ups here and there. But either that, like, eventually they're going to kind of cruise to the title by a decent margin, or we're poised for a, like, for lack of a better term, hilarious, like, drop in form that allows Leicester or more more likely Man City to come back into it. And it really does feel like it's one or the other. It's either kind of Liverpool continue on as they have been and win the title, or they have a horrible run of form and really cannot straight put together a string of results and Man City uh, find a way to get their third straight title. Man City, though, for their part, I would say not looking as like hungry as maybe we've seen them in the past. Yeah. Maybe winning it back-to-back will do that. Ryan, does that narrative make sense to you that it's, it's one of those uh, scenarios most likely? It's, it's the other scenario for me, Tay-Tay. Can I ask Liverpool oh. fans to put their earmuffs on for a second? Because uh-huh. I think these kind of away, as much as I say unconvincing wins are what champions do, 
the kind of performances they put on suggests to me that it's not sustainable. They're not going to have an invincible season the way they're playing on the road like this. Mm-hmm. And we look at this period, I think from something like from the end of this week until the first, uh, for the, the third round of the FA Cup in the first week of January, I think they average a game every three days, Liverpool oh, do. They've got to go to Qatar. They've got um, five competitions in that space of time as well. The wheels are going to come oh, off at some point the there. Cup. The Club World is Cup the Club is World not... Cup? Oh, goody. Yeah, 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 exactly. So the, that is at the point where I think if you remember Man City last season, they lost a couple mm-hmm. games in December when the pressure was on and they had the metal to kind of bring it back and win 14 in a row at the end of the season. And Liverpool could do the same thing. But if they're going to drop points, it's going to be in this period, in this winter period, maybe through January as well. And that's when I see sort of the gap being closed and we're going to get okay. a much more entertaining run at this. So say if we reach, so as I said right now, uh, uh, what, eight points ahead of Leicester City, nine points ahead of Man City. If we get to February 1st and and it's like Liverpool five points ahead of Man City, how do you feel like that plays out down the road? Well, bear in mind that Sheffield United will be two points ahead of Liverpool at that point as well. <laughs> Is that how it works? I think it's how it's going to work, judging by how things are going. <laughs> All right. Is that your way of saying you want to talk about Man United Sheffield next? Oh, we're going to tease the City Chelsea even longer. I would love that. Yes. All right. Then let's talk Sheffield United 3, Man United 3. I'm just going to say thumbs down to everything. Um, Just everything in general. That's what I want to say. (laughs) I was going to say thumbs up to everything. What a coincidence. Fine. Why why do you want to give thumbs up to everything? Oh, for the neutral, which is what I am. uh, Shut up, Ryan. A six-goal game on a Sunday is very enjoyable, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You know who agrees with you is uh, Manchester United manager Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, (laughs) who said, like, if you're here for the football, it's a great result. And I... Agreed, while simultaneously thought to myself, I am not here for the football, and I am not here for a 3-3 draw against Sheffield United. Uh, can, I, can I read out um, a text message that someone sent me? Cause there was, there was a, when Man United were 2-0 down, I've got some Man, mm-hmm. a Man United supporting friend was complaining about, you know, everything's bad, blah, blah, blah. And one of my friends sent him a text, which he screen grabbed to send me. He said, if it helps, no one in any way is sympathetic or cares that Man United are struggling. Yep. And in this terrible near-apocalyptic society <laughs> that we inhabit, laughing at Man U losing may be the one unifying factor that brings people together. So you should be happy to be a part of that. That's a text message. <laughs> it, it is a text message. It is also completely accurate because you don't have as much success for as long as, as United have. And then get to complain when there's like a a five year downturn in form. I mean, it's not the most fun, but it is definitely the case that yeah, yeah. Whenever I start to complain about Man United to Daryl, I just get an instant like it's not even an eye roll. It's just a like, really, you want to do this? Yeah. You want to talk about this? My like my team were League One not too long ago. You want to go with like, oh, my team are barely mid table. So yeah, maybe I shouldn't be too disappointed. But I think it was just that like. I think I let myself believe, Ryan. That's always the mistake, is never let yourself believe. That United go 2-0 down, as you said. They pull it back. They get up 3-2. What, three goals in 10 minutes. Uh, We see Solskjaer make some adjustments, make some changes that were necessary. United go ahead 3-2, and it just felt like, okay, maybe this is it. Maybe this is when they they have officially stolen the page out of Lampard's book of, we're just going to play young, hungry players who want to work, who want to prove that they belong. Mm -hmm. We're going to let some of the dead weight continue to be dead weight on the sidelines. We're going to let the rest of it go in January and like this is the game plan and then they concede another one with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer changing his tactics to be more defensive and kind of inviting the pressure back on from Sheffield United so it finishes 3-3 uh, United with the point on the road and you're absolutely right that with all that said I'm guessing I have not moved the needle for you at all and you still just find this wildly hilarious uh, yeah hilarious is the is the, uh, the word I would use definitely for, for, for okay. any I'm of Man United's troubles because as you say Anything that's coming to you after all the success you had in the 90s and early 2000s, good for you. But mm. I mean, this was an interesting game, not for not for you, but for me. No. Um, just looking at, say, like the midfield, mm-hmm. Pereira and Fred. Yep. This is Manchester United. Mm-hmm. This this team won the treble in 1999. That's 20 years ago. But now, still a very big team, still got a lot mm-hmm. of money, still have a lot of backing. And the best midfield pair you can start a game with is Pereira and Fred. Yep. And and I think that's that's a very smart uh point to drive home because it is Pereira and Fred. And it and those two starting at, at like the center midfield 
really represents all of the issues that Man United because number one, it's Ole Gunnar Solskjaer switching to a back three, but he kept a front three. So you have a three four three now, which means you have two central midfielders because uh, Rashford on the left, uh, Daniel James on the right, spread very very wide. So you're not going to have much support against uh, Sheffield United, who went with a three five two. Three midfielders is more than two, Ryan. I don't know if you knew that or not, uh, but that means your midfield's always going to be overrun. So that's Ole Gunnar Solskjaer getting the tactics wrong. But then you look at why he had to get the tactics wrong, and it's because Pogba injured, Under Herrera allowed to go for a free, uh, Scott McTominay injured, so you don't have as much reinforcement and depth as maybe Ole Gunnar Solskjaer would have liked. So then you look at the board and, and Ed Woodward for not bringing in the players. But then simultaneously, there are still players that are playing for Man United and you expect them to be okay. And when, uh, yeah, Pereira can't complete a pass and Fred completely loses track of a runner for the goal, it becomes maybe it's about the players too. So in the end, it's just sort of all of Man United's mediocrity uh, represented by that decision to go with a midfield too. Yeah, and it just seems like it was such a misstep by Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, yep. this one, wasn't it? And as you say, like, you could clearly see the Sheffield United. They had um, more more men in their midfield. So they had Lundstrom and Fleck mm-hmm. and, and even Norwood were just overrunning the midfield every single time. And it doesn't help that they had to change things up. And, you know, Phil Jones had an absolute shocker, didn't he? Um, yes, sort of he did. Being at fault for that first goal as well. Yeah. It was just a very subpar performance from most players. Let's give credit to some of the kids. Obviously, the three mm-hmm. three goal scorers, two teenagers and, and a 22-year-old. There's some, there's some positives there. Brandon Williams, we haven't seen much of him. What do you what do you make of him? I mean, that volley was solid. I'll yeah, take that. It was. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think for left back has been an issue for you for United uh, in recent years. Luke Shaw uh, routinely not being healthy, and then whomever else wants to try to play left back, Ashley Young amongst them, uh, not really impressing or filling United fans with that big of confidence. So I I do think like that uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is not wrong to go the Frank Lampard route here. I'm calling it the Frank Lampard route, even though it was a transfer embargo that forced it. Um, <laughs> but giving opportunities to young players to come in and say, like, basically, if you want this spot, prove that it's yours, prove that you deserve it. I would say sparking a comeback with a great volley with your weaker foot is a good way to do that. Um, I do think he was hung out a little bit and maybe looked less successful in the first half because he was playing on that side with Phil Jones, who is not a left-footed uh, center back, so made it difficult for him to kind of play some balls into the path of Williams. Instead, Williams routinely having to like drop back to yeah. pick up a ball that Phil Jones had under hit. Um, and I think a- after the ch- halftime change when Jones leaves, that's when you see Williams uh, look a little bit stronger. And I-, I think for the foreseeable future, that left-back spot should potentially be his. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Is this... The worst you've seen Manchester United play under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, save for that, let's say, eight or nine minutes when things were shaken up a little bit. I suppose when the Mason Greenwood substitute changed yeah. things up. Mm-hmm. Save for that small period of time, was this the worst you've seen Man United play under Solskjaer? It, it was not the worst. It was the most frustrating, I think, because like because there have been other moments where it was just like, I don't know what this team is doing, and they have Pogba, they have Rashford. Like There have been games when they had a stronger starting 11, mm. and the injuries explained some of it, as I said, but it was more just that like th- those three goals and that sort of, oh, they fought back, and then they conceded the late one, and it was this dramatic 3-3. In reality, like they had 10 minutes of good soccer, and that was sort of because, yeah, some changes happened, and maybe Sheffield United started to feel themselves a little bit. United got one, then they got two. The first one is a what? It's like a cross that's overhit, that's flicked on, and then Williams just hits a, a worldy basically to bury that one. And after that, I think United feel a little bit more grown to the game. Greenwood gets his, uh, like gets in the right position. It's a good ball from Rashford. Rashford's goal was a great assist from Daniel James. And there's that moment of like, okay, they're clicking, they're playing really well. And then the substitution happens or the adjustment happens. United go more defensive. Yeah, no, sorry, it was a substitution. Twansey beyond from Martial. Yeah. And they sit back, and it was just that sort of like, you finally got them playing well, you finally got them buzzing, and rather than push on and go for a, a game winner, which Ferguson would do. And I know that this is like going a little in the weeds on Man United, but like that's a Ferguson trademark, is you keep going, you keep putting the team under pressure if you have the momentum, don't take your foot off, go for another one and win 4-2. Instead, United, I think, tried to see the game out and hope for it. And to me, that's this weird, like, they didn't play for 60, 75, or 70 minutes, then they do for 10 minutes, and then it's sort of like, okay, now let's be defensive, and you just can't have these fluctuations in the game and expect consistency and consistency in results. Yeah. So not the worst, but I think one of the most frustrating games for me. Yeah. Ollie McBurney's equalizer in the 90th mm-hmm. minute. If VAR had have ruled that out, I would have thrown my television out of the gosh darn window and I'd have had to go to Best Buy on Thanksgiving on Black Friday to buy another one because that would have been the biggest injustice ever. But it did teach us yeah. something. It taught us something in that armpits can score goals because VAR has been teaching us again and again that armpits Mm -hmm. make you offside 
And McBurney's armpit scored that goal, effectively. It, it really did. And uh, and strangely, like, I, this is this is the sign of where things are with Man United. Like, I wasn't even mad. I was just disappointed. And in that moment, like, you could just tell as soon as that long diagonal happens and it's brought down and Sheffield United, like, I, I forget who the defender was for United who came out and just kind of doesn't quite get the job done. But from then on, it's like, they're going to score. This is going to be a goal somehow. And it pops up. And even in the most un- improbable moment, Ollie McBurney with the armpit control, that was not illegal, and then finish as well. It just felt like, yeah, yeah, that feels about right. Yeah. That feels about right. So I'm happy for him, even if it made me uh, slightly sad in the moment. Indeed. Never bef- never have you realized how much you miss Scott McTominay, eh, Tay-Tay? I mean, that that in and of itself is a sign of the times <laughs> right there, Ryan Bailey. Uh, we're, we're talking armpits. Uh, armpits played a role uh, to some extent in the uh, uh, Man City-Chelsea game. Beautiful but we're going to keep teasing that one because instead we're going to talk about today's sponsor, our friends at Audible. Audible has the world's largest selection of audiobooks and audio entertainment, including Audible Originals. Those are stories created exclusively for audio, including documentaries, exclusive audiobooks, and scripted shows that you can't hear anywhere else. Did you know that audio Audible keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained? You'll finish more stories when you listen with Audible and always be a part of the conversation. With that convenient Audible app, you can listen anytime, anywhere, and on any device, mobile, Alexa-enabled, Bluetooth, and more. Personally, mm-hmm. Tay-Tay, I like a bit of Audible on a long car journey. For example, yes, my most recent drive to Nashville, I listened to the entire Football Ramble book on, um, on Audible. Football Ramble is another podcast, apparently, which I probably shouldn't oh. mention. We don't acknowledge their existence. Uh, we do, though. We, we love the football ramble. We love Luke Moore. Uh, I'm glad you enjoyed that one. The one that I am like hesitant about but leaning towards is Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology book uh, because I enjoyed American Gods. I have not seen the TV show. I mostly like Neil Gaiman. I cannot tell if this book is just sort of a retelling of Norse mythology and, and Norse uh, sagas, or if this is him doing another sort of like, oh, no, it's a modern incarnation retelling of uh, Norse mythology or something like that. So I never quite know what I'm getting into with Neil Gaiman, but that is one that has uh, uh, sparked my fancy a little bit. For a split second there, I thought you were saying Neil Diamond, and I was like, I didn't think Sweet Caroline had any Norse mythology in it. Maybe I'm mistaken. <laughs> Maybe I'm stupider than I thought. You didn't know that one? <laughs> Apparently I thought you not. knew that one. Oh, my mistake. I Sweet thought we made that clear to you. Captain Zeus. <laughs> la, la, la. Um, so, but you enjoyed the Football Ramble book? I did. Sweet Captain Zeus. That's outstanding <laughs> by you. That's outstanding work by you, Ryan. All right. Well, if our listeners would like to check out uh, the options on Audible, as we said, there are so many, so many options uh, for car rides, for at the gym, for at work, uh, if you are allowed to listen to things like that at work. Basically, any t- time you can't read, you can listen with Audible. And our listeners can start listening with a 30-day Audible trial. Uh, they can choose one audiobook, two Audible originals, absolutely absolutely free. Uh, to do so, visit audible.com slash TSS or text TSS to 500-500. Ryan, one more time, those URLs, please. Audible.com slash TSS, mm. or you go ahead and text TSS to 500-500. Thank you very much to Audible for sponsoring today's episode. Thank you very much to Ryan for that dramatic reading. I enjoyed it immensely. I also enjoyed uh, Man City Chelsea. Ryan, where are your thumbs, and did you enjoy this game? Oh, I got thumbs. I got so many thumbs. I'll give a thumb. Let's start off with one for Manchester City in general for getting it done. Um, th- <laughs> this was this was a game in which they were outplayed for large periods, and then sort of showed they showed champion quality in getting back into mm-hmm. it and, and asserting themselves over this game. Did they not? They absolutely did, and this is this is sort of the reason why. I'm I'm less inclined to say like oh it's Liverpool's that's it because this feels like a game where uh, in another realm in another like uh, multiverse this is a city team that have won two in a row that maybe aren't as motivated and Pep Guardiola's having to kind of like plug holes where he can mm. and maybe this is one where they kind of lose focus for a little bit they end up not getting the results they fall further behind that they're able to pull it back against a Chelsea team that looked good that looked solid uh, had the sort of counterattacking game down frustrated City on multiple occasions that City are able to find a way uh, and capitalize on individual mistakes which is a thing I think you have to do but it's still Still is City continuing to fight, which is what you would ask for them, from them at this point. Yeah, definitely. And this one was a mouth-watering prospect in that we had the team who scored the most goals on the road against the team who scored the most goals at home. So, um, and two reasonably weak defenses. So, this one was definitely n- never going to finish nil-nil. I, I, I really enjoyed um, Ngolo Kante 
getting forward, mm-hmm. being the registrar. <laughs> get, show, show, um, I, I thought it was amazing that the, the way he um, set up, uh, or got that first goal, was it not? It, it was, it was not, I just, I'm sorry, I need to hear you say that word one more time. Registrar. Ooh, fancy, 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 fancy. He, yes, seeing him score, and also seeing him score like a incredibly scrappy goal that was also technical mm. felt apt. It felt correct. Like that was how that goal was supposed to happen. You I call that scrappy? Fam- I mean, ju- just the like bringing it down and then like kind of finishing while falling over. And I think not like knowing what he's doing, but n- also simultaneously not being entirely certain if he's put that ball on frame or if mm. he's gotten it past the goalkeeper. Okay. I feel like those few little moments uh, made it scrappy to me. And then Tammy Abraham having to like roughhouse the ball, like to make sure it goes in. For a moment, I thought maybe he was going to be offside, but he doesn't end up making contact. So it doesn't really matter. But I, I-, I loved that goal. I loved N'Golo Conte getting his name on the score sheet for sure. Yeah, definitely. The- the- Chelsea were for large periods from the start the better team they were definitely overrunning the midfield there and counting Kovacic having playing a big part in that but I think what showed the the constitution of the City team they just didn't panic they didn't Mm -hmm. panic when they went behind at all did they and they just got back into it I was really pleased to see that Um, not that I've got any horses in this race or anything but can I give a (laughs) thumbs down to Pep Guardiola and his continuing decision to put Fernandinho in central defence uh, so I'm fascinated by this because you can, but by all accounts uh, and the coverage I have seen, there was a lot of praise for Fernandinho in this game, that he made good defensive plays, he made good defensive reads, he didn't commit any like obvious fouls or put City in any particularly problematic situations, and then was obviously good with his feet. So why are you going thumbs down on this one? Uh, well, Fernandinho has been very good, and in terms mm-hmm. of defense, he's generally had put, put, put in a, a good display this season. But the point is, he doesn't have to be playing there. Otamendi, as much as he might have any shortcomings, is fit to play in central defense. There are youth mm-hmm. options that could go in. Eric Garcia could play there, for example. And not having Fernandinho in defensive midfield is the pro- a biggest problem for City, I think. Yeah. Which for which reason? Because you don't have his sort of like defensive nous. Uh, that was that was a point that I think uh, the match of the day guys were were making that like Arsenal didn't know when to foul to break up those professional plays the way Fernandinho seems to have it like completely figured out. Or do you just mean that like they miss his presence in terms of everything he brings to the equation? More that it's a defensive nous. More that the screening okay. he does. More that the, the breaking up play. The the the, the highly suspect mm-hmm. tackles. Gundogan and Rodrigo are great, but they don't quite serve the same purpose that uh, that he does. And I think it alters the formation. He's four two three one without him, and it's generally a four three three when he is in front of, uh, of that defense, and that that changes things. We know that Pep prefers a four three three for a start, and I, I just think that say last season when. I've got a quote for you here from Pep Guardiola. Since I arrived here, I was looking for a holding midfielder and Fernandinho was good because we won. If we lost, it would be because he'd had a bad game. And that's completely true. If you look at their losses last season in the league, it was either when Fernandinho was injured or if he gave away a goal or he had an an unexpected bad performance. And I think he's so important to this City team and that's something they're going to have to address going forward because he is 34. But playing him in central defence, as good as he is at that, is a is not using his talents to their best effect. All right. Uh, is this your audition for Fernandinho's agent? <laughs> I feel like yes. I feel like yes. Did well, I get as it? long as we're as long as we're being critical of uh well, I guess you're not being critical of a holding midfielder, you're being critical of the usage of the way a holding midfielder also, is being utilized. One of the goals, I'm sure it was it was it was um Fernandinho who kind of stepped up and inter- intercepted the play and started mm-hmm. the movement and he was kind of in that defensive mil- midfield position. If he'd have been there more often, he could have been doing that kind of thing more often. That's a really interesting point. Uh, and that is where I wanted to go because I was going to give thumbs down to Jorginho for having a very bad 10 seconds. And it is part of that sequence. You're absolutely right. It's Jorginho trying to find, I believe, Tammy Abraham. It is a very poorly hit pass, not really aware that Tammy Abraham isn't really ready for the ball, nor is he aware that Fernandinho is absolutely ready for the ball. Mm. Fernandinho steps, wins that ball, plays it to Kevin De Bruyne. Then Jorginho tries to shut down Kevin De Bruyne, does not do that at all. De Bruyne able to turn and play the ball forward. Um, so no problems there. And then... Kevin De Bruyne, when he gets the ball back, he cuts inside. He finishes the he finishes the shot. It's a great goal, but he cuts inside because Jorginho goes for the like the last ditch desperation sliding tackle, and it's the most humiliating moment you can have as a defender. <laughs> you go in for the slide tackle, the attacker just very calmly cuts right past you, and you go sliding out of frame as he finishes expertly. So a a bad sequence from Jorginho. He also didn't really help too much on the Riyad Mahrez goal. He could have maybe provided a bit more cover as a holding midfielder. The Arjun Robin so goal, you mean? 
Uh, yes, excuse me, the Aryan Robin goal. I don't know what I was thinking there. Uh, yes, that was that was a definitive Aryan Robin, and it was a great goal from Riyad Mahrez yeah. uh, slash Aryan Robin. But maybe Jorginho could have done better. So maybe two holding midfielders uh, who maybe they should just swap. Let's put Jorginho at centre back for Man City. Let's put Fernandinho as a holding midfielder for Chelsea and see what happens. I'm, yeah, I'm sure there's no rules that are preventing that. Sounds good to me. <laughs> uh, Jorginho, he doesn't often make mistakes in possession, does he? I think it's, it's uncharacteristic, isn't it? I mean, not not this season. La- last season under Sarri, he made a few more, but that yeah. was more so to do with the entire team not wanting to play that system anymore. So I don't know how much you want to blame him for that. I also don't know how much you want to blame VAR for the things that happened in this game. Right? Oy, should we talk about it? I mean, we have to. We have to talk about VAR. It's, it's the rule on this show. <laughs> so Sterling having that goal disallowed, which ultimately didn't have an impact on the scoreline, but it certainly must have an impact on Raheem Sterling's psyche because it's at least this. I mean, there was that uh, it was a West Ham one where it was pretty suspect as well, wasn't it, for mm-hmm. Sterling? It's just another case of them drawing a line, and it probably depending on which frame they select to draw the line. The VAR people, mm-hmm. for me, when the line is you can't distinguish between the two lines, nope. that's just categorically not offside. That's categorically nope. not in the spirit of the law or the game for me. If we're yep. not going to give the benefit of the doubt to attackers when the line is drawn on top of the other line, what is the point? And and, and like you made this point uh, last time we were recording about like when is the the frame frozen? Like how do, exactly do you know? Is it is it the exact moment the ball is left or what have you? In this sequence, like just he looks onside to me, and they've drawn the line in such a way that it's like well, it's through his armpit, but not through the Chelsea player's armpit, and like it just it doesn't really make sense to me. Aside from they're like oh, yeah, they were, yeah they yeah he's like he's like a a quarter inch offside, but there's no other way to show it, so we have to make the lines look more dramatic. But yeah. in, in Actual fact, they make it look more confusing than anything else. And I, think- and I also think, sorry, uh, I was going to add, I also think it's frustrating to me because everything that Sterling did for this goal, where he kind of like bodies Zuma as the long ball comes in, and he's just doing so much and so much presence to really hustle back three yards to make sure he's on side, mm. to then be in a position to finish, and then have it ruled out for what was at very, very best a very marginal offside call. Uh, I found very frustrating. Again, I'm saying this as a Man United fan who has very little interest in what Man City are doing. <laughs> yeah, and that was basically the point I was going to make, and I was also going to mention that the planes of motion where um, you know Sterling's heading forwards towards the goal, and it's his armpit, whereas it's Zuma's butt is kind of opposite, going in the opposite direction. They're in different planes of motion. They're diff- going at different speeds. It kind of makes it look a bit worse. And I think you should definitely give Sterling the benefit of the doubt because of how hard he has worked to get into that position, as you say. I don't know. I just, I think, like, I know there's no rule about, you know, having to have daylight between the players or daylight between the lines, but that kind of call just seems like it's not... We watch... The reason we watch this game, a large reason we watch this game, is because we like to see goals being scored. And that mm-hmm. is working against it. And that... I don't think... If, the, if there was no VAR and that goal was given, we wouldn't be talking about it. Because it wasn't, it wasn't as if, oh, he's definitely offside there, is it? Yep. There, there would no, there'd be no argument to suggest he was offside and it was an outrageous decision to allow that goal. So I think VAR is working against the interests of soccer and you and I... And it's offending me, and I don't like it, and I want it stopped. I don't like it either, and therefore I don't want to talk about it anymore. So <laughs> let's talk about other things. We've talked about a lot of the Premier League. Uh, let's move to South America, where we had the Copa Lib final uh, this weekend. Oh, yeah. A dramatic one, to say the least. Flamengo end up your winners 2-1 over River Plate. Gabriel Barbosa with a, a brace and then a red card of the 90-plus-5 minute. Uh, Bore uh, with a goal for River Plate. Uh, Rafael Santos Bore. Uh, and then you had uh, Ezequiel Palacios also getting a red card there. Lots of drama, lots of big moments. Ryan, what stood out to you from this one? Uh, lots of things stood out to me. I, I enjoyed the venue for a start, the Estadio Monumental, those pictures of it in, in Lima. It looks incredible, doesn't it? But it does. I, I have to say, you put in the show notes uh, the Bond Villain Lair Stadium, yeah. and as soon as you like, as soon as you, or I, I read that, I was like, yes, thank you, because I could not figure out what that vibe was, and I, I was kind of obsessed with it too. And it is absolutely a Sam Mendes Bond Villain Stadium. It's like, yeah. it is. It is meant to be the setting for the next James Bond movie. It has definitely been carved out the side of a volcano. I think that's yes. definitely true of that stadium, but it looked fantastic. And I, I think there's probably a good reason for it being put there. I did some. I looked at Google Maps. It's three thousand miles yep. from Rio, is Lima. Uh, it's two and a half thousand miles from Buenos Aires, so it's very much a neutral territory. And it and does six thousand miles in the sky, right? <laughs> yeah. It's actually only five hundred feet above sea level, so it's not super okay. high compared to other places because it's coastal. So um, I, I, that wouldn't have been too much of an issue. Um, but um, that makes more sense. 
Yeah, but, but I, I guess the, po- the point of the pudding there is, A, it's quite neutral, it's far away, it's you know not not terribly different from having it at the Bernabeu as they did last uh, last year for the second leg. But um, there's not a lot of pubs, there's not that. a lot of bars near that stadium, so I think that maybe helped to contributing to uh, less trouble, although mm-hmm. although some players, Gabby Gold, get yeah. himself in trouble, eh? Oh. Yeah, so let's talk about Gabigol for a minute here, because he he returns to Brazil, he gets the brace, they're the Copa Lib champions, then the red card, whatever. But like, it does lead to the question. Like, he, this is a player who I thought was going to be the next big thing. He was going to be the next big Brazilian. There have been many of those: the new Pele's, the new Romarios, the new uh, Neymar's, what have you. I think Neymar's the new Neymar. <laughs> so, where are we on Gabriel Bar- Barbosa now? Do you want to see him? give Europe another shot? Do you want to see him try it out again and see if maybe it was just the wrong timing and now he's better prepared? Or would you rather he stay in Brazil, continue to win, continue to get in altercations and get red cards and be a source of drama, but also entertainment? I mean, full full disclosure, I don't care either way about what Gabby right. does, but I, I'd like to see I'd like to see him succeed, definitely. Uh-huh. And I'd like to, I mean, I don't think there's much room for him at Inter Milan anymore, but I think he deserves another shot in Europe. I, I was lucky enough to go to the um, 2014 Olympic gold medal final in Rio and this was the game where Neymar was in front of him and he had Gabriel Jesus and Gabriel Barbosa either mm-hmm. side of him the two Gabby the, the, the two Gabbies and there was so much hype about which one of these guys was going to do better in Europe and you know there was a lot of people saying Gabby Gol was far superior to Gabriel Jesus didn't quite work out that way when they both made their move and they both looked superb in that game by the way but I don't know. It just, I, I think it could just be circumstance for him. I think there's every chance if he went to a different European team or a different European nation, he could have a better chance. I mean, is he the kind of player you could see like an Everton getting loads of goals? Yes, it is. I, and I can't tell that's just because Richarlison is there. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah that's probably why Brazilians I said it. in there. We'll see what happens. <laughs> uh, but no, like, yes, I do think he's, he's a player who requires like a certain situation and probably requires a lot of time and confidence to to continue to go that said like Inter Milan have not been the most consistent team and have not been the best about giving people consistent minutes and backing them entirely uh, that's changed a little bit this season but when Gabby Gabigol was there definitely not so yeah let's give him a let's throw him in at Everton or Watford or something and see what happens yeah definitely and he full credit to uh, to, to Gabby Gol for Man United 99ing the heck out of this game there we go. coming back and getting the getting the win there and and a mystery red card apparently for foul and abusive language that nobody really saw or understood or indeed cared about because of the result but uh, yeah. a great result for them I thought wasn't the highest quality of match I mean it was no. technical but I mean it didn't seem like either team was that bothered on defending very much it was definitely end-to-end and it was fun but um there was an interesting quote from George Jesus uh afterwards saying whoever saw it will understand the level it had champions league level compared to the last final between Liverpool and Tottenham this one had more technical skill tactical contents and a much more beautiful atmosphere than that final in Madrid I kind of agree with everything he said there but also I don't think it was as high quality as uh, as the European Champions League frankly and I, to be fair I, this is the only game I've seen of this tournament I'm sure leading up to this Copa Libertadores final there were many high quality games going towards it but this one, I didn't think was a shining example of that. Yeah, it's the old it's the old saying, right? That like finals are never going to be your best display of football because right. like, anxiety is so high, emotions are so high. You never necessarily know if you're going to get the best game as a result. Uh, you mentioned uh, Champions League final, which Liverpool obviously did quite well in. Now we've got the Club World Cup coming up. Ryan, are there things you think Liverpool can learn from this game, or things they should be paying attention to when it comes to potentially uh, facing Flamengo? Yeah. So when it, when all goes, if all goes to plan, it'll be a Flamengo that that faces. Liverpool in the club World Cup final in Qatar I think that Liverpool will do all right against these guys I'm, I'm sorry say to so. say for, for, for the uh, for the Brazilians here I mean they they look pretty vulnerable in defense it seemed like River Plate found a way through an awful lot it looks like there was lots of chances to play through the middle there it seemed like there were quite a bit lower intensity but that could be to do with the final and the 500 feet of, um, yeah. <laughs> of uh, above sea level that we had there um I, I thought that you know it was both sides were having lots of shots from about thirty yards. So it, was, it seems like it was almost like in basketball where there's nothing going on in the middle of the field. They all just crowded to the edge of the box and started having shots. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you, you do have uh, Felipe Luis at left back from Lingo. You have Rafinha at right back. I think I read he's the only player, or one of the only players, to win the Champions League and the Copa Libertadores. Mm. So you've got that combination at fullback. You've got Gabi Balbosa up top. You've got uh, uh, Jorjan de Arasqueta. Uh, Bruno Enrique was great, I thought. 
Yeah, so you've got some threats there for sure. But yes, I take your point that I fully expect uh, Liverpool to be just fine in the Club World Cup. Pro- like, assuming, of course, that they actually care and actually try and don't just play like nine-year-olds. We shall see. Um, do we think we'll get a Neymar celebration uh, in the Club World Cup? Or after what you've seen from the Copa Lib final, are you okay with not having one? Well, we certainly got one for this, didn't we? Neymar sort of filming himself as he's wont to do, uh, celebrating Flamengo's win. I was a bit confused by this because obviously he's a, he's a Sao Paulo boy, not a, not a Rio boy but uh, uh, it transpires that Neymar is dating Gabriel Barbosa's sister no uh, or is it Gabriel Barbosa dating Neymar's sister yeah ne- Gabriel Barbosa is dating Neymar's sister which Gabriel I thought Barbosa is dating Neymar got it I, well I thought it'd make Neymar angry because he wants to date his own sister from from the fan fiction I've been writing but um <laughs> I don't know sorry family show I'll move on but I thought this was curious um I wasn't ready for that <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was curious to see Neymar celebrating this, and it was nice as well, I suppose. And I, but I, I don't expect to see him celebrating the result of the Club World Cup final. Uh, n- nor do I. Uh, a couple more games to get to, and then we'll we'll call it quits for today. Uh, we should mention uh, Dortmund's 3-3 draw with Paderborn. Uh, Dortmund go 3-0 down at halftime, come back to uh, draw 3-3 at home. Mm. Uh, but this is against newly promoted Paderborn, a side that no one expected to get points, or very many points this season, certainly not against Dortmund. Uh, and it seems like this is another potential nail in the coffin of Jaden Sancho's time at Bruzia Dortmund. Uh, he was dropped and fined last month after returning to training late from international duty. Then in their 4-0 loss to uh, Bayern in Der Klassiker, Sancho was subbed out on the 36th minute, Dortmund down 1-0. Worth noting that uh, this happened, I think, last season. Dortmund went down early. Sancho was instrumental in the comeback against Bayern Munich, so that had him feeling a little confused. Mm. And then I think it was Rafa Honigstein writing for The Athletic was reporting that basically the club sort of keep asking him if he's planning to stay to the extent that he's like, I don't understand what you all are trying to convey to me or why my answer isn't good enough. But Jaden Sancho appears to be a player who is very deliberate in his decision-making when it comes to club career and club choices, hence why he went to Dortmund in the first place to get those minutes. And so from what I read, it sounds like he basically said, like, no, I want to be here. And they keep being like, but do you, though? But do you? <laughs> like an and unwelcome at a certain house point, guest. it becomes like, well, maybe I don't want to be here anymore. So uh, I do, like, the dropping of points is not ideal. But if this is another blow to Jaden Sancho staying at Dortmund, I got to say, it's a pretty negative result for Dortmund. Uh, Lucien Favre, the manager... On the hot seat, he got the vote of confidence, e. but the vote of very little confidence. That was sort of, I think the the newly elected president came out and said, like, we definitely still believe in Lucien Favre, but of course results are uh, part of what we consider. Which is the most, like, if I was like, Ryan, we love having you on the weekend review. You're definitely going to host this show. And then, you know, next week we'll see. Like, that's not the biggest, uh, like, endorsement of your uh, long-term stability, nor do I think it was for Lucien Favre. So maybe some things uncertain at Dortmund Yeah, sure. definitely. It was the Dortmund AGM on Sunday where, where that um, Thank vote of confidence yeah. was given. I, I just, I just want to – I'm picturing a scenario. It's kind of, sort of like hands working Watzka, the Dortmund CEO, sitting in his office. It's like a Mr. Burns-style office. He's got two chairs in front of him, Lucien Favre in one, Jaden Sancho in the other, and he's got his finger hovering over the trap door button. <laughs> and whose who's button is he going to push? That's what I want to know. Who's, who's outstanding? Is- they're welcome the most. Who who's the house guest to? Oh, we're, we're we're starting dinner soon. Are you sure you want to stay for dinner? Well, yeah, I do. But you're making it sound like you don't want me to stay for dinner. I want to know right, exactly <laughs> which which uh, which one Should of these guys I is set gonna... a place <laughs> delivered with that tone. Exactly. Yeah. I hope the trapdoor leads to dogs that have bees in their mouths, and when they bark, they shoot bees at you. <laughs> oh yes, I love it. Can I can I take off into something? Um, my my daughter Please. has been uh, singing "Be Our Guest" from Beauty and the Beast uh, quite uh-huh. often at the moment because they're doing it as their school play. And all I can think of is Mr. Burns singing uh, See My Vest. See My Vest, yep. <laughs> like my loafers, former gophers, it was that. I was getting my show first. I can sing that whole song if you want this one. I think I had that CD, the Simpsons Sing CD, and it was just every musical moment from the show, oh. some of which were like four seconds long and some of which were like four minutes long. And it was great, and I listened to it a lot as a child. I've had to, uh, um, which I begrudgingly had to subscribe to Disney Plus in my household for reasons I object to, but I have. Um, it does have all the old Simpsons episodes on it and i did find that and i watched that again but uh, do you have children uh yes i do i know you do and that is the reason why you subscribe to disney plus i'm assuming because basically they own all the, the children's content it was it was the it was my my uh, my wife actually who campaigned the uh-huh. hardest for it i had to say all right they all love it she's she's a big mandalorian fan 
Uh, yeah. By the way, I've never seen a Star Wars. I know that's a big bombshell to drop at this point in a podcast. I but... really, I really appreciate you entertaining the yes and before coming clean. <laughs> I like that. But should I watch this Mandalorian? Would I get it if uh, if I'd never seen a Star Wars? I have Wars? no idea. I, I haven't seen it because I am not yet a Disney Plus subscriber. Okay. We subscribe to like literally everything else, and I just can't bring myself. Like I have to unsubscribe from something to make it happen. I'm up to so. eighty dollars a month on subscriptions, and I resent that yeah, very right? much. By the yeah, way, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. But you know. Cord cutting. It's great. Uh, um, let's move to Italy uh, very briefly. Milan with a 1-1 draw, uh, home to Napoli. Uh, a, a decent result for Milan, but very indicative of a lack of depth and overall talent in the squad that they're sort of papering over some cracks until maybe they get to another window when they can sign some players and then inevitably fire the manager again. Yay. But until then, let's talk Napoli, where things definitely seem to have gone wrong for Carlo Ancelotti. Uh, Napoli winless in six games in all competitions, seventh in the table, only 20 points from 13 games they are scoring fewer goals this season conceding more ryan any ideas about what has gone wrong at napoli or what happens next um i think this is something you mentioned in the show notes but the change of formation to a 442 mm-hmm. and specifically in that uh having chucky lozano and insigne as the two well lozano's not really built he's, yeah. a, he's not built for that position surely so mm-hmm. it feels like he's out of position and you, you're combining him with who i saw someone i saw on twitter described as the worst finisher in europe it's not <laughs> The, the, the best combination, I suppose. But my biggest beef, my biggest uh-huh. beef is that Dries Mertens didn't start this game. I think if there's a rule for any soccer team, it's that if you have Dries Mertens in your team, in your squad, you have to mm-hmm. start him in your starting 11. And if he's not yeah. in your starting 11, everybody should be asking, where is Dries Mertens? Why is he not starting this game? I, I do I do appreciate that it's one of your fundamental philosophies of soccer slash football that Dries Mertens <laughs> must always be utilized. Yes, it is. It really That's is. Good. He's my favorite. Uh, I mean, and maybe that is something that Carlo Ancelotti should pay attention to because, yeah, by all accounts, the flat four four two has not uh, gone over well. Uh, the players much prefer the four three three that is uh, at least more recently like representative of Napoli and does not put them in in a position to thrive necessarily. But then also uh, Ancelotti liking the rotation system of bringing in like swapping in new players, giving everybody a rest, seeing what happens. Uh, but then like after the game doesn't go well, complaining about the lack of consistency from his players. If you're not starting a consistent eleven, I don't really know how you can expect a consistent string of results mm. yes <laughs> I, I suspect i suspect we should move on but i guess the reason why i'm 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 sort of very fascinated by this is because i i was convinced that carlo Ancelotti would do very well here i was convinced that carlo Ancelotti would have been a good manager for yeah. arsenal or for man united um but it seems to be his reputation at least in the last like five years or so has become he's a manager who isn't really going to tactically innovate. He's going to make your star players happy. He's going to put star players in a position that they want to play in. And he's going to sort of be laissez-faire about stuff, which can work if you're coming in after a, like, tactician disciplinarian and maybe the players at Bayern like need a little bit of a break and they don't need to be yelled at so much so Carlo Ancelotti comes in and makes things very jovial but then very quickly if you have a lack of discipline you go uh, the great quote I saw was basically the players have gone from being micromanaged to undercoached in two years and then it seems like the players sort of lose interest aren't as focused and you need someone to come back in and be that disciplinarian Carlo Ancelotti does not seem like he wants to be that type of manager so unless he has a uh, like a, a sort of moment of Jose Mourinho I've got to change things up which again we'll see if Josie Mourinho actually does I'm a little worried about Carlo Ancelotti becoming you know the uh the global manager that everyone still loves and adores I I, I want those eyebrows around for a good long time Ryan it sounds like you're making a very convincing case for Ancelotti to Arsenal right now as well there we go let's make it happen let's make it happen uh one one more league we should mention briefly uh let's talk La Liga where Real Madrid uh get the results uh and Real Madrid uh or excuse me Gareth Bale gets a reception he gets something That's all right. That. I, yeah. I, I would have bet my house on Gareth Bale being nowhere near that stadium for this game, and yet he comes on and has an impact and gets a, plays his part in the third goal. Um, weird situation there, isn't it? What, do you, what yeah. do you make of all this? Because on the one part, I feel like the whole Wales golf Madrid in that order flag thing in the international break was pretty poor, pretty unprofessional on his part. But at the same time, he I mean, is, it's, it's something that's that what was he cares put, about. At the same time, it was something that was put on him, wasn't it? It was, it was yeah. like the Madrid press that made this up. He's just kind of owning it for himself and trying yeah. to turn it around as a joke. And he's the one who's being basically cast aside by this club who's paying him a lot of money. He's the one who looked like he had a deal to go and now and then was shoved up to the side for seven or eight weeks. I think mm. he's got every right to be annoyed and to, to express that with that flag, I think is a fairly 
a reasonably low key way of doing it, and to come back in and and have an impact like this is good for him as well. I I know I'm being British. I've probably got the narrative of being on Bale's side on this one, uh, which is not how the Madrid uh, the Spanish press feel about it. But I do feel quite sorry for him almost in this situation. But at the same time, it also seems like he's not that bothered by it. I don't I don't feel sorry for him as much. I do agree with you that he doesn't seem as bothered, although I don't understand how you can have a stadium of your own fans whistling you and newspapers writing every negative thing they can and have it not take an emotional toll. What what I am more so flummoxed by is or maybe like would encourage people to see this as is an opportunity to remember that communication is important when it comes to relationships. And this to me feels like Real Madrid not really being able to communicate an effective message to him of look, you have not not done what we've asked. You got to go. We're going to sit you and we're going to find a club for you to go to. But then simultaneously, they're also sort of in this mindset of like, well, but he's a really expensive player and we want to keep his value up, but also nobody else is going to pay for him at the at the amount we want. And so they just kind of keep doing this like, well, until we figure it out, we're just going to exist in like the kind of realm we're in right now, which is a realm of like nothing. And so instead you have these moments where like, as you said, I did not expect him to, to play even a tiny part in this game, and that he subs on and does have an impact and does positive things as he's being booed and whistled, it further compounds the confusion of what is his status there and do they actually want him there? Does he actually want to be there? It really, it's a weird situation. It's not one I'm really familiar with of like the more the player plays, the more murky and confusing the situation becomes. Mm, Very odd. And what was also odd about this game, Tete, is that Madrid Mm. came up with a convincing scoreline. I was convinced they were going to trip up in this one. And I mean, they are unbeaten at home this season, but they've had a few instances where they've almost tripped up. And Sociedad beat them twice last season. They beat them in both games last season, including at the Bernabeu, their first victory there in 15 years. I thought that, you know, they've had good away form in the past few weeks as well. And, you know, they've still got that David Moyes blood running through their veins. It's still in there. So, I th- uh, you know, and he's, he's, he's a <laughs> that's champion. All that, that's all that matters. Uh, he is a champion. So I, <laughs> so I was expecting more. I was expecting a little more from Sociedad and perhaps a little less from Madrid. So full mm. credit to Madrid for getting the points there. And the Liga table looks a bit more normal now, doesn't it? Barcelona it does. and Madrid tied up on points with one goal difference between them at the top. And you've got Sevilla and Atletico in third and fourth and Athletic mm. in fifth. That looks much more how we expect it to look. And I believe uh, that's Barcelona top, Madrid second, with uh, a game fewer uh, for those two than everybody else in the league because that Clásico had to be called off. So Mm. it's a Clásico that separates these two at the moment. So we will get that. We'll get two of them this season. Uh, And when we do, I'm sure Ryan and I will talk about them on the weekend review. But until then, I think we've we've talked about plenty of soccer from this weekend. So Ryan, anything else to add or should we we call it a day? I'm going to go watch some more old Simpsons episode on Disney Plus because that's what I feel like doing right now. And a boy. Well then, Ryan, I've enjoyed our time as always, and I look forward to talking to you next Monday. Always a pleasure, never a chore.